Well, we're in the series, this is week three, of the Lord's Prayer. And last week, Pastor Matt talked to you about the first part of the Lord's Prayer, um, which is our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I, I don't know about you, but, but most of us, I would say, are praying people. We, we find it pretty natural to pray, especially when there are things in our lives that, that drive us to our knees. Maybe needs and concerns, or people around us have those needs and concerns, and we're pretty eager to pray. But I want to ask you this. What is your batting average in prayer? I mean, if you, you know, look at all those prayers that you offer out there, when it comes to the requests you give to God, what percentage would you say um, are answered? What percentage would you say actually get results? I mean, is it, is it 50%, which would be a 500 batting average in baseball? Is it, is it 1 out of 10, you know, 10% or an average of 100? What is it? Do you know? And would you like to increase it? Would you like to get to a higher level? I know I would. I want to learn to pray more effectively. And that's why I think the disciples looked at Jesus and said, there is something about your prayer habits that, that we, are, we lack. There's something about the results you get in prayer that we aren't seeing in our prayer lives. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. And so Jesus gave this prayer. Now, you need to know that when he gave the Lord's Prayer, he didn't tell you this is how you should pray. And I grew up in a church, and every Sunday, I think they still do, they say the Lord's Prayer. They say it in the King James Version. And they say it every Sunday. They're very devoted to saying the Lord's Prayer. And that's fine as long as it comes from the heart. But Jesus didn't say, this is what you should pray. He said, this is how you should pray. There's something about the structure of this prayer. There's something about the approach of this prayer that we would benefit in learning. And I think one of the key things was last week when Pastor Matt talked about the priority of entering into his presence when we pray, of recognizing who he is. He is not some distant God. He's not a, a judge we have to plead with. He is our Father. We are children coming to a father. That's so profound because in, in the Muslim faith, they don't even have that term for God. They don't use the term father for God. And even for the Jewish population, they didn't use really any name for God that they thought was his name because they didn't want to uh, tarnish the name. So they would substitute names for it. So instead of saying um, the I am, which was his name we learned from the Old Testament, I am who I am. They would, they would substitute names for God. And so, but Jesus comes along and says, hey, let, let's make it very simple. Call, call him this. Call him our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Get, enter into the presence of the Father and worship him. You'll notice that, that all the great prayers in the Bible start with a focus on God, which is so unlike most of us, including myself. How often have I prayed? And the very first thing is, dear Lord, I've got some requests. Help me this, do this, do this for that person, without even acknowledging whose presence I'm in. Can you imagine being in the presence of a great figure? Say it's the president of the United States. Uh, maybe not this president for some of you, but just say, uh, say, uh, say uh, a president you admire and respect, and, need, and that president is in your presence, you come before. Would you say, hey, president, there's a few things I'd like done in my district? Or would you come in with, with sort of a, an honor saying, you're in, a very, you're, in a, you're in a very powerful position. You have, a, you have power to influence a lot of things in our great land. And, and, and because of that, and because of your love for this land, I want to ask you to do this because I believe it would help in this ultimate goal of, of ruling this land. When you come in acknowledging whose presence you're in, and so we come into prayer. It's so critical that we, we just don't rush in and treat God like a genie in a bottle or a vending machine. Like, boom, boom, boom. Can you give me this? Can you do that? Can you jump over here? Come on, God, get to it. But say, 
God, you who created this world, you, the only God who listens to prayers and responds, the God who loves us more than we can imagine, the God who desires good things for us, I come to you. I come into your presence. I focus my attention on you because you incline your ear to the cries of your children. What would, what would happen if we would start our prayers just entering into that presence, even just kind of mentally saying, I'm in the presence of the great and powerful God. That's the place to start. But there's another piece of this prayer that I think is so important, maybe the most important part for us, because when you practice this discipline, you will increase the likelihood of your request being answered. Failure to practice this discipline in your prayers. And I can, I can promise you, you have zero chance of having your prayers answered. This, this piece is so critical. It's so critical that we understand this part of prayer because many of our prayers don't fall into alignment with this. And therefore, kind of bounce off the, the floor of heaven. They never reach God because they're, they're missing this critical component. We're going to talk about that today. If you desire for your prayers to have a greater impact, I just want to tell you, get this piece right. Get this one piece right in your prayer life, and it'll make all the difference in the effectiveness of your prayer. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do, I'm going to ask you to actually pray with me for this. But Father, you are the great and awesome God. We come into your presence. We are here to open up your word. Would you speak to us? Would you speak your truth to us? Would you penetrate our hearts? We would know how much you desire to work in our lives and how we can come into a place where there is great power in prayer because we're learning to pray as Jesus taught us. In his name we pray. Amen. So Matthew chapter 6, the very, uh, it starts off, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then this is the verse for today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I just want to break it down and just very simply look at those components of that line of the prayer. Your kingdom come. Now why would Jesus say that's, that's how we should pray that God's kingdom would come? I mean, doesn't, doesn't God own this earth? Didn't God make this world? Didn't, didn't Jesus speak it into being? Doesn't it all already belong to him? Well, he made it, that's for sure. And he put you and I on this planet. Sure did that. But honestly, he doesn't rule this world. But in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, there's been a usurper. 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 Was risen up to, to reign over the hearts of people. And his name is Satan or the devil. This world is ruled by him. The Bible says the ruler of this world is the devil. Now, we don't have time to divert into a whole discussion of who the devil is, where he came from. But, but he is and was an angel created by God, one of the most beautiful, powerful of all angels. It was called Lucifer. And there's some allusions to him in the Old Testament. Some, some of the kings of foreign lands are likened to this angel. But it says this angel was filled with pride, wanted to be um, elevated and worshipped and praised like God was. And so he was cast out of heaven, took some other angels with him came to this earth, and since that time he's been roaming this earth seeking to deceive people. And that's where it began in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve uh, were told by God that, that, that they could have anything in the garden, that, that there was just one thing they shouldn't do. It's eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was yes, only one thing was no. And Satan said that one thing that's no, that's off limits, is the one thing you really should desire. And so they, they disobeyed God, they ate of the fruit, and that began the fall. And Satan, ever since that time, has dangled the bait in front of each one of us 
to reject God's authority in our lives, his rule in our lives, and to follow his ways. And that's what we've been doing all our lives. It says in 1 John 5.19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. If you're not a child of God, here's where you are. You're under the control of of the evil one. Now you might say, Pastor, I, I've never, I've never acknowledged Satan as my Lord. I've never like intentionally listened to him. Hey, every time you reject God and listen to that whispering voice that says, "Do the other thing," that's him. That's him. And every time you obey that voice, you're submitting to his rule. You're following his ways. Now, it's interesting that in the United States there are actually three places in our country that are called Satan's kingdom. They're all up in the Northeast. I don't know why that is. They're all up in the Northeast. So if you don't like the Patriots, some of you would say, that's why. <laughs> that's Satan's kingdom. No, there actually, there's three places. One of them was a place where years ago, um, Native Americans who were part of a certain tribe were, were, were pushed out of their tribe because they were committing crimes. They were stealing chickens and they were killing people. And so they were cast out. The place where they reside was called Satan's kingdom. There's another place. Um, that's a very uh, gnarly trek of land. Uh, it, it's used for, for sometimes for mountain bikers and such, but it's very, very rough terrain, very dangerous territory. And then there's a, a third area up in the northeast, and it's a plot of land that somebody bought, thinking that it would be a great place to raise crops, and nothing grows there. It's unfertile. And so uh, out of sort of disgust, they, they call that place Satan's kingdom. Now, now, understand this. Satan's kingdom in those three places, filled with rebels and dangerous and unfertile land. That's the kind of things that are likened to Satan. The kingdom, uh, the, the king of this place we call Earth. Now, I would have said that in the summer, Phoenix, Arizona could be Satan's kingdom. <laughs> Last week, it got up to like 120 degrees. The record temperature for Phoenix is 122 in June of 1990. We lived down in that area during that summer. It was blistering hot. And you could, you could fry an egg on the sidewalk. I mean, if, if there's ever a place on earth that you said, like, that feels like Satan's kingdom, it would have been Phoenix in the summer. But it's not. It's a good vacation place in the winter. So Jesus comes on the earth. And he's baptized by John the Baptist, goes out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan. If you remember the third temptation, he took Jesus to a very high place, and he, and he offered Jesus. If Jesus would bow down to him, he would give him what? All the kingdoms of the earth. All the kingdoms of the earth would be his. Because this earth belongs to Satan. It says in Ephesians 2, that before we knew Christ... We were following the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So here's the truth. Everyone on this planet belongs to one of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. You belong to one of those two. There's only two. There's over 20 political kingdoms on this planet ruled by a monarch or a king or some authoritarian figure. But there's only two spiritual kingdoms on this earth. God's and Satan's. And because Satan is this puppet king roaming around this earth. It is why Jesus said we've got to be praying that God's kingdom invades this place and has been taken over by this rebel leader. We need to pray that his kingdom would reign. And so when you give your life to Christ, a, a, a miraculous spiritual transaction takes place. Colossians chapter 1. 
Verse 13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He's, he's translated us from one kingdom to another, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom that's under the power of Satan to the kingdom that's under the power of God. And all of us live in one or the other. And if you've not chosen God by default, you're under Satan's lordship. Because anytime you surrender to his will, you've basically claimed him as lord of your life. So what is this, this picture of the kingdom? We think of kingdoms as physical things with armies and castles and walls and armies, all those kinds of things. But the spiritual kingdom is different. It's a spiritual. It's an invisible kingdom. It's a kingdom based on authority. Kingdom based on who rules. Now, when, when I became a homeowner for the very first time, I felt like a king. Anyway, some of you probably felt that way. You start walking through the house, you go, it's mine! It's mine! I want the TV over there. And here's what we're going to put in the garage. We're tools all over here. And we're going to park this here. And I'm going to throw my clothes right there. <laughs> Why? Because it's my domain. Until you realize that there's someone else that's maybe even more powerful than the king. It's called the queen. <laughs> and she says, pick it up. Well, yes, dear. You pick it up. But this feeling of, of mind and authority and, and, and I can get to control this, that's kingdom. So, so Jesus comes along and people are expecting this physical, political kingdom, but he doesn't comply with that. He says, no, no, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet at the same time he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's in your midst. He told so many parables about the kingdom of God, saying the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like that. He's, he's describing this, this realm where God rules. So that's the key of understanding what a kingdom is. A kingdom is wherever he reigns. So when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, we're not looking for a place. We're looking for a person. We're looking for a person to surrender to, and that person is Jesus. Seek to be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, and then things are going to fall into place in your life. So Jesus begins by saying, we want God's kingdom to advance on this earth. And then he says this, your kingdom come, your will be done. Which really is just clarifying what he means by your kingdom come. How does God's kingdom come? By his will being done. Whenever and wherever God's will is done, God's kingdom begins to expand. Now, what is God's will? God's will is pleasant and it's perfect. Listen to Romans chapter 2, 12 verse 2. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. So here's the problem. We've been brainwashed into these patterns of thinking, into, into the ways of the culture saying, well, this is what everyone else is doing. This is how it works today. Or this is the way it's, this is what it's like in the 21st century. And God says, no, I, I've got, I've got ancient truths that are good for all time. Values that, that last through all generations. And so we're always challenged by that, by, by Satan influencing the culture around us coming up against God's word. And, and let me just give you some examples of where we see that so vividly. I think it's in, in, in marriage and relationships is a big one. How much do we compromise the view of relationships and marriage because of what culture has said? 
even within the church, very few men and women say, you know what, we're not going to move in together and be sexually intimate until we're committed to marriage. Which is something the Bible talks about. That, that we want to be committed to, to one another in a, in a relationship where, where, where it's protected by the covenant. Yet our culture just comes around us and says, you know, that's old-fashioned, it doesn't work anymore, we've got a better way. And here's how Satan works. Satan is so good at, at deceiving us into believing that when we do it his way, it's actually better. And sometimes we can actually say, see, it worked out for me. That proves it's good. See, see we, we go into huge debt to buy things. We, we use credit like it's cash. And we go into this huge debt, and, and it feels good when you have all that stuff. You got the new truck and the new house, and you're eating out and buying all these clothes, and you're Credit card bills sky high, but it feels good because Satan wants you to feel good. The bite comes later. The, the, the hurt comes later. But initially, it all feels good. Someone's viewing pornography or being sexually, uh, they're, 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 they're dabbling outside their marriage. They're, they're toying with an affair. They're like, you know what? This is kind of exciting. This is fun. I'm enjoying this. That's Satan's deception. See, it may, it may seem pleasant and good and perfect on the outside until the world crashes. And then we come crying out to God to, to bring us out of it. You know what's interesting is, is the pressure against even, even people in the spotlight. Russell Wilson, I'll give you two football examples because I'm a big football fan, but they, they're very relevant to this. Russell Wilson's a quarterback for a football team, dating a celebrity, and he came out public saying, we are going to wait until we're married. To be intimate, and he got he got ripped apart in the media and by his own peers, saying, you know, who are you? And, and that's not how we do things today. Just this week, Derek Carr, another quarterback, signed a contract with the Oakland Raiders for 125 million dollars over the next five years. And he said the first two things he wanted to do since he signed his contract with all that money was first go get a Chick Fil A sandwich. Right? That's what all of us would do probably first: get Chick Fil A sandwich with waffle fries. <laughs> and a peat shake, and then, because he has the money to get that, right? So, but then he says this, and then, and then I'm going to tithe, because I've been doing that since college. You know, that's not. You don't hear that from athletes today. You don't hear that in our culture today. You hear someone says, "You know what? I've I've tested God's will and improved it as good, pleasing, and perfect." And I found in my own life that when I align myself to God's will. And I do the hard thing, that I find that it's good and it's pleasing. And it really is what I need. It's perfect. Now, God's will has two different meanings in Scripture. There is the decreed will, which are, which are things that God says are going to happen, and they're going to happen. He decrees the sun's going to rise, it's going to rise. You can pray all night long to say that, it, that you don't want it to rise. You want it to stay down all night, and it's not going to change it. It's decreed. It's going to happen. There's a passage from Acts 2, we won't read the passage, but it basically says that God ordained and determined beforehand that Jesus was going to die on the cross. He'd be betrayed by sinful men. That was already decreed. Nothing was going to change that. That's God's decreed will. He says it, it will happen. But then there's this desired will. The things he wants for you and me, but we have a part to play in it because these are things we should do, but we don't always do. For example, in 2 Peter 3.9, it says that he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish. God's will is that nobody perishes. All agree? He wants everyone to come to repentance. And so does everyone get saved? Does everyone repent? No. Why? Because of their will. Their will clashing with God's will. 
Same thing with the next one. First Thessalonians 4, 3 tells us that we should, we should avoid sexual immorality. It says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, this is very, very clear what God's will is. Pray, pray always, excuse me, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks for all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. Christ Jesus. What's God's will? I rejoice, I pray, and I give thanks. It's not real complicated, but it's hard to do. Why? Because our will clashes with God's will. And what we need to do is learn to surrender our will to his will. See, here's how God's kingdom spreads on this earth. When his will is being done. When more people, more often, say yes to him. That's how we overcome the rule of Satan in this world. By saying yes to God. And we begin right here. On earth. As it is in heaven. We want to pray that that happens right here on earth. And so we pray for, we pray for our nation. We pray for our political leaders. We pray uh, for city governments. We pray for our schools. We pray for all that, that they would follow God's way, that they would do things in, in a way that honors the Lord. We want to be uh, a nation that God blesses. You know, God bless the USA. We want to pray for our nation. But I, I want to get very, very practical with us because you can pray for God to bless the whole nation. It may take a long time to see if those prayers are answered. But I think, I think God wants us to focus first right here. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, starting right here with me, beginning with me. God, that is my prayer, that you would, you would do that in my life. That should be our very first request. And that's the place where we get messed up on. Because I don't know if we really want God's will to be done in our own lives. See, so many of our prayers, and I'm just speaking out of personal guilt, I come to God when I've done something bad in the first place. I've not followed God's direction for how to treat my kids or, or interact with my spouse or handle my finances or, or, or think or whatever it is. I then come to God and say, God, you know, I've got this issue now. I've got this predicament that I'm in that I never would have got in had I done it your way to start with. But here's where I am. Could you bail me out? Could you help me out? You know, I've not taken care of my body for all these years. I don't exercise, and I don't eat right, and I sure like my cupcakes and, and, and goofy coffee, and I know it's too much sugar, but Lord, now that I, I'm a diabetic and, and I may you know, lose something, lose an organ, would you help me? You see, we're so focused on the immediate fix, like the little detail, like God, put a band-aid on that, you know, rescue me, and, and I think as much as God likes the details in our life, God is first focused on the direction of our life. Wait, where are you heading with all this? What's the direction that your life is going in? Because if you want me to heal you and you're heading in a direction opposite of what I desire for you, I'm not into that. I'm not into a healthy body that doesn't please me. And here was a revelation for me many years ago that in my prayer life I had to stop and ask myself a question that I think God was asking me. Why should I do that for you? So I would ask God, God, I... Uh, my throat sore. Lord, I pray that you heal my throat. Because that's what God does. He heals people. So God, do what you do. But then I started to think, what God must be thinking. God says, Darren, why should I heal your throat? What's in it for me? If you're to use that voice to, um, to tear people down, to criticize others, to curse, why would I want to heal your throat? Good point, God. God, I pray that you heal my throat so I can speak 
well of you, that I can praise you with this voice, that I can teach others with this voice. Uh, I remember praying for, for a house. God, we pray that we get that house. And why? why? Why would I want you to have that house? Well, God, that's a house that we can host Bible studies in. It's got a big room, and, and it's got a guest room that we can have missionaries stay in our house and, and guests. And, 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 and it was like, okay, keep talking, keep talking. I like what I'm hearing. But, but I caught myself so often just saying, God, do this. God, do this. Why? Because you're capable of doing it. Without thinking through what's in it for God, what's in it for the kingdom. Why would God want this for me? See, Jesus was in the garden before he went to the cross, and he was facing this big challenge. Do I want to give my life for mankind? Do I want to go through the brutality of the cross? That's excruciatingly painful. And so then he prayed in Matthew 26. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. See, what would happen if, if we began our prayers acknowledging who God is and then saying, God, more than anything, I want your will to be done in my life. However much it costs me, whatever, whatever I have to carry, that's okay as long as I can fulfill your will in my life. That's what I desire James chapter 3 gives an example of the kind of prayer. Before we boast about where we're going to go and what we're going to do today or tomorrow, we should always say, if it's the Lord's will. If it's the Lord's will, we'll do this or we'll do that. 1 John 2.17 tells us what will happen if we live a lifestyle like this. If our heart's desire is to do God's will, the world and its desires pass away, but, the, but whoever does the will of God, guess what? lives forever. Is that what you desire more than anything? For his will to be done, for his kingdom to come in your life. Max Lucado, in his book, The Great House of God, says this so clearly. Asking for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done is a bold appeal for God to occupy every corner of your life. And so think of it as kind of an, getting aligned with God. When we're in alignment with God, with, with our will and His will, there is power in prayer. There is power, because now our prayers are according to His will. 1 John chapter 5 says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Anything according to His will, He hears us. Very similar to what Jesus said in John 14, 14. You may ask me for anything. Again, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you ask me anything according to my will, if you ask me anything in my name, the name of Jesus, the will of Jesus are in alignment. When that is our desire and prayer, he says, I will answer that prayer. I will do what you pray. Thy kingdom come. Starting right here, Lord. And some of us today need that so desperately because our lives are falling apart. We've got all kinds of problems and issues in our lives. And, and God cares about those details, but he cares more about the direction. Where is all this going? Where is all this taking you? Closer to me or further from me? The day is a day for some of you to pound a stake in the ground and say, more than anything else, God, I want your will to be done. I want your will to be done in my life. And friends, honestly... You can look at life in one of two ways. C.S. Lewis says it brilliantly in his book called The, the Great Divorce. He says, in the end, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. 
and those to whom God says, your will be done. No one goes to hell, he says, without wanting it. What do you want? Your will or his will? 